Welcome to the Public Morality. The MacArthur Fellows Program, unofficially known as the Genius Grant, is a prestigious prize awarded annually by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, typically between 20 and 30 individuals working in any field who have shown an extraordinary originality and dedication to their creative pursuits. This year, Catherine Coleman Flowers is an environmental activist who was one of the Genius Grants awardees for 2020. Flowers brought attention to the invisible problem of failing water and waste sanitation in rural areas and its role perpetrating health and socioeconomic disparities. In February, the Public Morality interviewed Flowers. Here is that interview. Catherine Coleman Flowers, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you so much for inviting me. Since this is an election year and we're apt to hear a lot of discussion addressed to the so-called middle class, whatever that means, but I suspect very little, however, will be directed at those on the economic margin. So I'd like to begin this conversation by you framing the scope of your work with those on the economic margins and without using names specifically, put a face on, on, on the issues that you're addressing, if you would. Yes, I think that, well, primarily my work is in rural areas. Um, and in rural communities, I think that the, the type of poverty and neglect is rarely seen except pe by people who are from those areas. And when you go there, you can find some people living on the margins in, in, this, in the wealthiest country in the world with no way of dealing with their sanitation. Uh, they have raw sewage on the ground or it's coming back into their homes. I've been invited since doing my work in Lowndes County. I've been invited around the country because it's not just a Lowndes County or a Black Belt problem. It's a problem in Hawaii. I met with a group that was here. Uh, I worked with the Equal Justice Initiative, and there was a group that came to visit the memorial and the museum, and they asked to meet with me and talk to me about what is happening in Hawaii. I've been invited to Alaska where people are still using honey buckets, which are just buckets that they actually defecate or urinate in and throw it out the next day. Something that I recall when I was a child growing up in, in, in rural Lowndes County or visiting my grandfather over in Otago County. And, and a lot of people are still living that way. So when we talk about uh, people living, around, live, living on the margins, there are lots of people that are living on the margins and there are lots of places where infrastructure never made it. And it is anticipated based on our economic model that the people in the rural communities got to solve the problems themselves, except that they're businesses. So people are treated like things, and businesses are treated like people. Let's spend a moment, if you would, discussing uh, the history of Lowndes County as it relates to social change, because it, it has a long history. Yes, Lowndes County's history actually goes back, I, I can kind of... Well, Lowndes County was founded by people from South Carolina. When they wore out the soils in South Carolina, they, they moved west and they brought a lot of their slaves with them. Actually, I've, if you go to the town square in Hainville, they have a monument like most town squares in the south to the Confederacy. And the founders of Lowndes County came from Edgefield, South Carolina. Um, but after Lowndes County's, um, after the, the Civil War, uh, Lowndes County uh, initially elected black representatives that served in Congress and also served in the um, during Reconstruction and also served in the Alabama in the Alabama legislature. And then it became very repressive after Reconstruction. 
There was a sharecroppers union that was founded in Lowndes County and put down by violence. And then after the sharecroppers union um, was put down, W.E.B. Du Bois actually came, went and spent some time in Lowndes County and did a labor study because the, the people that own the property, they're the plantation owners, decided that they would control the labor by making sure that they didn't hire people away from the plantation. It was almost like a type of serfdom to require people to work and live on these plantations. And they were sharecroppers. And then later, um, during the 1960s, people start organizing. Um, SNCC went into Lowndes County, Stokely Carmichael, and a lot of other young people went there. And actually, the term black power came out of the struggle that happened in Lowndes County. And the original Black Panther Party was founded in Lowndes County. It was a political organization that actually was a Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And they ran a slate of candidates after the Voting Rights Act was passed. And it was only last year that the last candidate, last living candidate that was on that ballot passed away. But, uh, but Lowndes County has had an illustrious history. And there's a book called Bloody Lowndes by Dr. Hassan Jeffries. Actually, his brother was uh, one of the managers House managers doing the recent impeachment hearing, right. but he, but he he wrote a book that tells the the rich history of Lowndes County that often gets lost when people talk about Selma and Montgomery. But for Lowndes County, for people in Lowndes County to organize in the struggle under a political oppression and uh, racial terror um, meant you know quite a bit. And and I think that um, that history we need to resurrect and understand you know, what that means and how it can inspire us to go forward. And I'm my parents were activists, which has a lot to do with why I do what I do. And the name of that book uh, that you're referring was Bloody Lounge, right? Yes. Now, uh, Lowndes County is um, one of the poorest counties in Alabama, which makes it one of the poorest counties in the nation. You sort of t- touched on this in your initial answer, but but talk, I want to hear you talk more about, because I've heard you reference this in other discussions that you've had, what, what you're defining as third world conditions in America. Talk more about that, if you would. Yeah, uh, Lowndes County, and it's not just Lowndes. That's what I want to emphasize, because my work is evolving, because I'm, I'm getting calls from other places, and I'm seeing it. But what, I'm, what I see in, in a lot of these areas is what you would not commonly find in the United States. So what I did uh, back in 2017, when I found that the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Poverty, um, on the, excuse me, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty was coming to the U.S., I invited him to come to Lowndes County. And he thought that, I don't think that his people really understood the connection between poverty and, and sanitation. But when he came there, and I remember one of the reporters asked him, have you ever seen this before? And he said, this is uncommon in the developed world. So uh, it ended up setting the stage for his, um, setting the stage for, his, for his, his report to the UN. And I had the opportunity to be in Geneva when he presented his report, which is really interesting because right after he came, then I think, the president made a statement about these asshole countries, about people coming from these so-called asshole countries, and we certainly have these holes here in the U.S. The U.S. Special Rapporteur had just seen that, and then in June, when he gave his um, when he gave his report to the U.N. General Assembly, the United States had just left uh, the Human Rights um, Commission, 
And uh, when Nikki Haley left Ambassador Haley, her choice of words included cesspools. So when Dr. Austin got ready to do his presentation, he he, re- he prefaces by saying the government should do something about the cesspools that he saw in uh, in Lowndes County. So uh, that that's where you know the the environmental justice, the intersection of human rights, and also you know these systems that 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 manifest in poverty. You you are not going to be able to develop or do anything much in areas where that don't even have basic sanitation. So in terms of the of, of me seeing other third world conditions recently, I was invited to a, a small community that's located outside of St. Louis in Illinois. And it's the poorest I found out it's after I went there, it's the poorest town in the United States. It's mostly African American. It's near Superfund site. And I saw more raw sewage running on the ground there in toilet paper than I saw in Lowndes County. Mm. So it's a problem all over the U.S. I'm glad that we are removing the shame of pe- for people talking about sanitation so we can finally address this issue and get it resolved. Well, th- this is fundamentally uh, an infrastructure issue, but I don't recall much attention whenever the topic of infrastructure is raised. Things uh, included like water treatment, sustainability, uh, in low-income areas, we mostly hear about roads and bridges, and I, and I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Well, I think we have to have roads and bridges, but I think we we got to have basic sanitation too, because that's a part of, you know, it's a basic human rights. If you look at the UN Sustainable De- Development Goals, uh, number six is the human right to water and sanitation. I mean, I think that the, what happened in Flint uh, kind of shows. Flint kind of opened the door where we could get the attention because I've been working on this problem since 2002. But when we started talking about Flint and what was happening with lead in the water, then, you know, a lot of people that were calling me, I actually got a chance to go to Flint as well several times. And and I was telling people it's not just Flint. In Detroit, you have massive water shutoffs because a lot of the people have left the area. So the infrastructure is so old, a lot of water is going into the ground. So people are getting humongous water bills and they are actually putting water mortgages on people's homes and taking them because they cannot afford to pay the water bill. And when they take their homes, the person can just pay a small amount and get a house, which makes no sense when they won't work with the homeowners. And when they turn their water off, these massive water shut off, they don't have sanitation either. How do you flush a toilet when your water is turned off? And then there's Denmark, South Carolina. Similar problems with infrastructure. There are places in West Virginia, black black and white people in Kentucky. I was supposed to be in Kentucky um, in a couple of weeks. And in Kentucky, they've called me because they have problems there. So throughout the United States, in poor communities, Uh, politicians, whether they're represented by black or white people, have been ignoring this issue. It has gone um, undealt with and neglected for many, many years. And one of the things that we're proud of is now that we're putting it on the front burner instead of the back burner. Because I think that when, when when I got the invitation in March to go and testify before a congressional subcommittee, and a lot of the people that were there even members of Congress started talking about their own communities. There was one there, the Congressman Delgado, I'll never forget it because I'm referencing him in my book. He said that his, his district in New York is the most rural district in New York. And some of his, some places, some of the rural communities in his district are also lacking wastewater sanitation. 
So it's, it's a more um, prevalent issue than we realize, but I think the reason it hasn't been in the media before, because it's in rural communities. Had it been very close to uh, or inside of, a, of an urban area that has the media attention, I think it would have been dealt with sooner. But because it's in rural communities and some of these areas, are, um, they don't cover unless something major happened there. That's why it wasn't covered. But I think that along with us doing the parasite study, when we did the parasite study, when we actually collected fecal samples and found evidence of hookworm, I think that's when we started getting the national attention because that's, that is not supposed to be seen in a country um, that is this wealthy, the wealthiest country in the world, and you're seeing all of these elements of third world diseases. Is this not... I, I'm trying to find the right words listening to your last answer, so I'm just going to call it uh, a blatant example of benign neglect in that no attention is brought to infrastructure needs of not just Lowndes County, as you mentioned, low-income areas in general, and, but it's really impossible to discuss economic development in any tangible way if you don't have the necessary infrastructure. Exactly. I mean, you're not going to, but I think some of it was intentional. It keeps the labor cheap, you know, especially in these rural communities. If, if, if the only place, first of all, if there's no jobs or it either keeps the labor cheap or the only jobs that you're going to be able to attract are dirty industries. You know, industries that's going to come in and pollute the communities because they're going to come in and pay the money to get there. Or, or in a lot of cases, the state brings them in because they want the tax money or they want to sell the land or whatever. But at the end of the day, the community is suffering. I've seen this in Louisiana. Go to Cancer Alley. When you go out there between Baton Rouge and, and, and um, Baton Rouge and New Orleans, particularly in, in uh, St. James Parish, St. James Parish looked like Hainville, Alabama. So well, when you I'm go so, there... I'm sorry, Catherine. Um, I was going to jump in real quick. Yeah. Explain uh, why that's uh, called Cancer Alley. Because they have... It's like the Disney World of fossil fuel industry and all these different industries, the dirtiest industries in the world, multinational corporations are located there. And there are very high rates of cancer in the area as a result of people being exposed to the contamination. That's why it's called Cancer Alley. I had the opportunity, I was invited to Cancer Alley by a man named General Russell Honore. And General Honore came to fame after Hurricane Katrina because he was from Louisiana. And they sent him over there, and he had experience in disaster preparedness and recovery. And he went there, and one of the first things he did was make them start treating the people that were victims of the flood like they were human and told them they couldn't point, point guns at people. And he became a hero. After he retired from the military, he's now an activist, an environmental activist. So he invited me to Cancer Alley, and I went there, and he had... Maps showing us where all these chemical, where all these plants were, which chemicals they produced, which countries they were from, and I thought it was pretty ironic when we we're stopping poor people at the border and won't let them come here and put them in cages and separate them from their families. But if you're a multinational corporation and you can be the biggest polluter in the world with the right amount of money, they'll put you right there up in the middle of a community. And what's so interesting about those communities? You can see the history. You can see the plantations when you pass there, the sugarcane fields. Some of these chemical plants are right next to churches and schools. 
And that's why people have the problems that they have. But on the other hand, there's not a big investment in the infrastructure. And when they were showing me the areas, they were showing me raw sewage and people living in mobile homes. So the people that are getting the jobs aren't the people that's living in the community most of the time. They're coming from somewhere else. But those communities are the ones that are being uh, that are being uh, polluted and their cancer rates are very, very high as a result. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Catherine Coleman Flowers, founder of the Alabama Center for Rural Enterprise Community Development Corporation, rural development manager for the Equal Justice Initiative serving the citizens of Lowndes County, and a senior fellow for the Environmental Justice and Civic Engagement at the Center for Earth Rights. Did I miss anything? Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary. And also, I've, I'm a practitioner in residence at Duke University. And you got a book. And yeah, I got a book that's coming out called Waste, but I, I'll talk about that at our next interview. But I have a, <laughs> but but I have a acre has since evolved because Alabama Center for Rural Enterprise was founded primarily to deal with the issues in Lowndes County. So we're no longer the Alabama Center for Rural Enterprise. We're now the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice, and our work is nationwide. And our goal is to work with other communities that have the same problems that we've we saw in Lowndes County and help them find solutions and also to to help hopefully develop policy policy solutions and technological solutions to this because at the end of the day with climate change being what it is we don't want people rushing in to put in something that's going to fail because we've seen enough failed systems that's what I saw in outside of our St. Louis there were failed systems where sewage is coming back into people's homes now and and, and outside of their homes I've seen that in Hainville, Alabama, too, which is in Lowndes County. And we know that these septic systems will not work. They're going to fail. And the more rain we get, the more it's going to fail because it was not they were not designed to deal with climate change. So we're also engaged. We're, we're actually competing for an award with a prestigious foundation. If we win this award, uh, we partner with the Gates Foundation, uh, Columbia University's um, a professor there at Columbia University, professor of engineering, a company out of South Africa, another group out of uh, India, because this is an international problem, to see if we could test some of the technologies that came out of the Gates Toilet Challenge or develop some new technologies. And I'm hoping to at some point come to Huntsville and maybe partner with some of the contractors there that are working with NASA to find some solutions that we can actually scale down and use in a home. So uh, that was a perfect segue because for many years, climate change um, was dismissed by those in opposition as an issue dominated by, my words, uh, elitist liberals. Uh, and I, I'm thinking specifically the, the, the picture that, that captured climate change, I, one, one that I remember at least, was the, the, the photo of the polar bear standing on the melting ice cap. But you have another perspective on the effects of climate change based on your work, and I'd like for you to share that if you would. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, you know, if you have raw sewage on the ground, you're going to start seeing more diseases um, related to that, and you're going to see tropical illness. You know, that's how I had noticed when I moved back home to, to Alabama, because uh, I, I moved back here directly from Michigan. And I noticed how the weather had changed. I noticed that it was warmer. Even the house that I live in now, 
I remember I, when I first moved here, I planted some palm trees outside of my home. And I used to have to cover them during the winter months. I haven't had to do that. I've noticed that even right now in December, I have rose bushes outside and they were blooming. Uh, it's, we don't have leaves falling off the trees and staying off as long as they used to. Animals that are, that are when I notice uh, animals like, because um, I used to teach, you know, geography. Uh, when I was teaching middle school in social studies. And I noticed that animals are associated with certain conditions of the land. In arid conditions, you were more likely to see armadillos. And armadillos, has, I started seeing armadillos on a regular basis in Lowndes County. When, when I used to travel from, um, from Oklahoma, from Fort Seal, driving back to Alabama, I would see the armadillos maybe halfway through Louisiana. And then I wouldn't see them anymore. But now they're here because it's becoming more arid. And as I started to notice these things, and then I saw an inconvenient sequel. And when I saw that, it put it into, um, it put it into perspective for me because I began to understand what I was seeing was a global issue. And it was in fact caused by uh, the, the temperature has been raised because of the carbon that we're putting into the air. And that's why we're going to have to move to a renewable energy. But the people that are being impacted by it first are the, the frontline communities, those environmental justice communities. And if you already don't have access to water and you're going to have less of an access to water, those communities are going to be impacted first. They're already seeing some of the diseases that are associated with it in a lot of places. Water is drying up. There's a place in... Um, there's an excellent place that I went to visit that's in California. You know, there's a part of the Central Valley in California that looks like the Delta in Mississippi without the water. And because, of you know, there's so much growing going on there, they're sucking up the groundwater. And it's gotten to the point where there's a place called Allensworth. And Allensworth was founded by a group of black people that bought and developed. It was the first town in California founded by black people. And they moved there because Tulare Lake was there. But the lake ended up drying up. Um, they at one point had planned to, 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 uh, to, to have an HBCU there that was going to be modeled after Tuskegee. That was going to be the Tuskegee of the West. But Colonel Allensworth was killed. Somebody ran over him on a motorcycle. He was a pastor. And he was on his way to the church that he was pastoring. We don't know why the guy did what he did. But... We're sure racism had something to do with it, but that ended up leading to uh, those plans not being fulfilled. But if you go to Allensworth now, the people cannot drink the water because the water, uh, the parts of the water to the arsenic that naturally forms in the water, arsenic is so high because the water table is so low, they can't drink it. So they were actually bringing water in for people to drink. A lot of people are on septic tanks or they just have... The, 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 um, they're just straight piping their fluid out onto the ground. So, and there are lots of towns in, in, in California that are like that. Actually, we found towns in California where people, a lot of those little rural communities, people are burning wood for, for heat. So we're, um, we're seeing the devastation of climate change. And if you're living in a trailer in Alabama, and you don't have electricity because you can't afford to bill because the bill is so high in the summertime and the, the trailer is not properly insulated. What are you going to do if you have asthma and the asthma rates are going up? We're seeing it already. 
in these in these rural communities. And we're going to see it. We're probably seeing it in the urban communities, too. But my work has primarily been in the rural areas where people don't have access to uh, the kinds of things that could keep them safe and healthy as we go through these these various climate changes. And even when we with these strong strong weathers uh, events, Alabama, uh, I'm hearing that we may have severe weather at the end of this week. People in mobile homes have to leave. Where are they going to go in these rural communities? These churches are not open Monday through Friday, where they may be able to go. And some of the churches aren't safe to go in. There are no shelters in those areas. So we're going to find. And in Alabama, lately has had the largest amount of deaths from tornado events than anywhere else in the country. And most of the people that died in the last weather event throughout the South were living in mobile homes. So that's where you see the intersection of environmental justice, poverty, and climate change. Well, you, you touched on it. I'd like to expand. Explain what uh, climate change refugees are. Uh, the climate change refugees that I've seen are people like in... Um, Two places in particular. There are people in Louisiana that the Homa uh, Indians, they're indigenous to that area, that have to be relocated because they're losing so many football fields of land in Louisiana every day because of climate change and sea level rise. And you're, they're also seeing it in, in Alaska where, where villages are literally falling into the ocean because the permafrost is melting. And then we're going to see even more where there's sea level rise. People that are living along the ocean are going to have to leave. In Miami, for an example, people are leaving Miami Beach. But where they're moving to the highest ground is a place called Little Haiti. Another term I want you to be familiar with is climate gentrification, where the people that the places where people used to live, the insurance companies may not insure them because it's too expensive to insure because they know that eventually there's going to be a catastrophe, but the highest ground were the places where they would only allow African people of African descent to live, and now they want to move there. The other location is Compton in California, because Compton is less likely to be subject, subjected to fires and, is, and some of the other uh, problems that they have in California. So they're experiencing climate gentrification in, uh, in Compton as well. So Compton is becoming gentrified. So although they don't call the people that are moved out climate refugees, but I think gentrification is going to is going to create another type of uh, of refugee where people will not be able to live in the areas that are safer because they're going to have to, you know, they won't be able to afford it. In addition to um, some of the things you just articulated, uh, are there some uh, long term or short term ramifications if the combination of climate change and infrastructure neglect in many of the rural areas and low coming areas are not addressed. Are, are there additional concerns that you have for the failure to address those two issues? Yeah, my, my concerns are, you know, we just look at this coronavirus that, that started in China and is now all over the world. What makes us think that we can have raw sewage on the ground and we having these warm days and something not emerge from someplace right here in the United States? You know, that's what led to us doing the parasite study in the first place. Because I asked that question, especially after being bitten by mosquitoes and breaking out on a rash and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Because all my blood tests were coming back, not indicating anything. And I wanted to know, is there something that American doctors are not trained to look for? That's what led me to the tropical disease doctors at Baylor's National School of Tropical Medicine. 
And that's how we end up doing that parasite study. So I think that, that the combination could be something pretty deadly where we can end up with diseases um, that could start, that won't come from the East. They'll start right here, you know, right here in the United States. And we wouldn't have to, and we're not prepared to deal with them. And I'm, I'm very, very concerned about that. Talking with uh, Catherine Coma Flowers, uh, Catherine, I, I see I see your work uh, in 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 the tradition of Martin Luther King in this sense. When King began addressing civil rights in, in 1955, um, over time he soon realized that the problems were much deeper, and they possessed an interconnected aspect to other issues, uh, such as uh, poverty, as, as, as you're doing. I see you doing very similar by focusing on the root causes. Um, you're, you're able to build alliances, I'm assuming, with individuals who may originally thought you and them had nothing in common. Um, speak to that, if you would. Yeah, well, I've, I'm, I'm on the board now of the Climate Reality Project, and I do a lot of work around environmental justice with, with um, former Vice President Al Gore. And we actually did a climate training where it was in Atlanta, and the whole focus was environmental justice, and that was a that was an intentional effort to bring environmental justice activists there from throughout the uh, the southeast. Uh, in addition, I've been working with um, uh, Reverend William Barber in the New Poor People's Campaign because uh, when Dr. King talked about the triple evils that led to poverty in this country, uh, Reverend Barber has added a fourth one, which is ecological devastation. So uh, that has been an alliance, and I've. I'm getting calls, as I said, from people from around the country, uh, black and white, who are living in these situations, and, and also people from, you know, a lot of immigrant communities, um, migrant farm workers are living in, in very, very similar situations. And I think that uh, poverty, if we look at it through the lens of poverty and marginalized people, it can be a uniting force because I think the, the, the politics of this country right now is division. But I think through this issue, I can help people see that we're all dealing with the same problem. And as a result, I've been able to develop partnership and alliances with folk that I probably would not have worked with. Uh, a lot of my partners have been people on the university level. For an example, Duke University. When I went to Duke for the first time to speak, uh, there was a young man in the audience who raised his hand who told me he was from Oringo County, Alabama. And his family could afford a septic system with all the bells and whistles. And they had just put one in their home. It was four months, and the sewage was already running back into the house. And he was a he he was young and and white and apparently affluent. Um, I've been approached recently by people um, when I was at Duke because there's a community in North Carolina that's apparently very affluent. They want to talk to me about the sewage issue they have that they have sunny day flooding, and when they look in it, they see human feces, but they don't want to go public because they're afraid that their property values are going to go down. You know, I'm also involved with various think tanks that generally bring people to the table who are uh, very affluent, but uh, I, for some reason, when they invited me the first time, and I thought I would never be invited back again, but I got invited back. And now they're talking about wastewater, when before I had to pretty much shame them into to, to looking at the human side of it instead of looking at just making money. So there have been a lot of collaborations. A lot of universities have reached out. I'm going to be working with UCLA. Um, 
I will be accepting a fellowship there with the Center for Diverse Leadership in the Sciences. Uh, I'm being nominated for some honorary degrees at some universities that I never thought would even be paying attention to what we're doing here. I'm getting outreach from even people right here in Alabama, the Auburn University, uh, Oakwood College up in, in Huntsville. Uh, a cousin just called me from Alabama A&M University. So there are a lot of people that want to be part of the solution. And I think that uh, and, and my role in it has been to kind of piece to first of all, help people to understand the narrative, kind of like a Brian Stevenson. I learned a lot from him. You know, he's my boss. And I learned a lot from how Brian uh, uses the narrative to help people understand how they fit into that narrative. And I've been trying to do the same thing. And as a result, uh, have weaved together some partnerships and collaborations that I think I would not have had otherwise. Catherine Coleman Flowers, I want to thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us on The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.